0: So, the next book, 1 Corinthians, here we go. This is exciting. It's always, it's always exciting to start a new book. Um, I'm someone who I don't mind change, so sometimes I even need to just jump around a bit. But so for me, when we start something new like this, it's always very exciting. I'm always very intrigued. What are we going to get into? What is the Lord going to reveal? Today, we will not be so much in the text of 1 Corinthians. What we're going to be doing instead is setting the stage for next week when we get into the text of 1 Corinthians. Because if we don't set the stage, then we're going to be missing out on the context. Um, and so I'm going to... I better get my uh, click-click out here. Um Is there a laser on this one? Okay. I get to use the laser today. We're going to do a little bit of background, um, some historical, cultural things, a little bit of an outline, and then I will end with some challenges as we get into the rest of this book. But before I do that, if you would join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we begin this journey together today as the Oasis Church. I pray for the brothers and sisters of the body of Christ, both here and those who uh, may be sick at home. Lord, I I pray for healing on them. I pray for healing for all the churches, Lord, around this nation, around this world, Lord, who are all dealing with uh, the COVID sickness, Lord, and we just pray for healing in that. We pray for the church to be united on the things that we should be united on, as we will talk a little bit about today, and as we will see in 1 Corinthians. Lord, I thank you, Lord, that you used Paul in a specific time and context to write this letter that are your words which transcend time. So that even 2,000 years removed, we can still learn from it today. Because it still holds the authority of you. It is your words. And I pray that as we um, get into the background information this morning, that we will see that this information is not just knowledge, Lord, but it actually is useful for understanding the context of this letter, Lord. I pray you would use me this morning as an instrument to herald the gospel and the truth of your word. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so some background information on 1 Corinthians. Uh, This church was founded by Paul on his second missionary journey. So I'm going to pull up our map here. This is Paul's second missionary journey. And right over here, is it this thing oh okay so right here is Corinth, okay, so we can see that we have Greece right here, okay, we have Ephesus over here, and Paul's actually writing this letter from Ephesus on his third missionary journey um here's Israel right over here, okay, so Paul travels up, travels over, and he's in he's uh On his second missionary journey, he establishes Corinth. Let me just get another map there so you can see a little bit closer. I got more, don't worry. Um, And so I wanted to actually read from Acts 18, the establishing of the church in Corinth. So if you have your Bibles, there's one in front of you if you don't, but open up to Acts chapter 18. This is Paul at Corinth. It says, After these things, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working for By trade, they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles." Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer. But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in the city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or a, of vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names and your own law, look after it yourselves. I am unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. And they all took hold of Sophanes. Sothenes, the leader of the synagogue and began beating him in front of the judgment seat, but Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria, and with him were Priscilla and Aquila. In Cancrea, he had his hair cut for he was keeping a vow. That is what Acts gives us as far as Paul's uh, second missionary journey. To Corinth and establishing the church there. And some of these things are actually going to come up in the letter itself that you'll be seeing back in Acts chapter 18, some of these things that kind of pop up later on. But let me just give a little bit of insight to this. So, Paul is in Corinth and he's there in distress because he had suffered ill treatment in Macedonia, physical mistreatment. He had been dishonored in Athens. And then he was rejected by the Jews in Corinth. So Paul is suffering here. And God appears to him at night by a vision and says, Do not be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent. I think what's interesting about this is that this is similar to what Paul then says to Timothy in the letter of 2 Timothy. You will be persecuted, but do do not be afraid. That's not the spirit that you've been given. Paul is joined by Silas and Timothy, and what's amazing is it's at Corinth that he meets Aquila and Priscilla and is joined in ministry by them. And they meet because they not only know each other uh, through the Lord, they have that in common, but they also had in common the bond of, they were all tent makers. They had the same trade. And so after 18 months, he leaves, and after he leaves, Acts tells us that Apollos then comes, and Apollos was an elegant speaker, and he was trained in rhetoric, which is this art of speaking with persuasion. So that's our background for Acts, but that's not when the letter was written, the letter was written a few years later on Paul's third uh, missionary journey. And I'll get that up. For some reason, the colors switched, so the darker is now the land, the lighter is the sea. I know, it threw me off forever. Paul's third missionary journey. At this point, he is in Ephesus. Okay, and he's writing to the church in Corinth because of the report that he had from Chloe's people. So this is during Paul's third missionary journey, and this is more than likely Paul's second letter, actually, to the church of Corinth, based on the report that he had received back from Chloe's people. And we'll hear more about that when we get into the letter itself. Um, A little bit of history now and culture about the city of Corinth. It was a great city that stood on an isthmus. This is a land bridge that is about three miles wide in this area, and it controlled all the east-west travel and trade. I got this map for you now. Okay, there's Corinth right here. And then this right here, it's hard to see, but this is the isthmus. And I got a close-up for you here. And so here it is. It's about three miles wide. Okay, and so this land bridge was really important because what it gave Corinth was the ability to control this travel and trade where on the east side of the land bridge they had access to Asia Minor and on the west side of the land bridge they had access to the rest of the Roman Empire on the side of like where Italy is and and Europe. Because it was quicker and easier to go through this three-mile landmass with your trade than it was to go around the island of Greece, around Athens, because it was so treacherous and longer. Some history about the city of Corinth to kind of bring us into the context of what's going on in this city is that Julius Caesar recolonized the city of Corinth just before his death in 44 B.C., So the letter of uh, 1 Corinthians is written about 53, maybe between 53 and 55 A.D. That's 50 years, right, A.D. You got 44 years B.C. So you're looking at roughly 90 to 100 years since the city of Corinth had been recolonized in the Roman Empire. What's interesting about this is when the city of Corinth was recolonized, Those who were set to go there and recolonize it were from a large class group of people. And when they went there to colonize, they were each given six to seven acres of land to start uh, building on. So you can imagine they go there with six to seven acres of land to build and recolonize the city of Corinth, and then on top of that also have full access to the trade and travel that benefits them from the isthmus there. So this and the nearby isthmus games, which were famous like Olympic games that took place near the city of Corinth, contributed to a very uh, a, a wealthy area. Corinth was a wealthy area, and it was a city. And the, the city and the surrounding area was said to have around 200,000 people. So you can imagine it's kind of like Aurora. It was a Latin-influenced city at first. Then what happened was you had an increased presence of Greeks and other Hellenized groups of people coming in and moving into the city but they were not citizens but foreign residents with civic rights so they were not part of the social elite and as Paul brought the gospel both the social elites as well as the poor were being saved and so what happened was the social elites opened up their homes for the church gathering once the synagogue was no longer available. But this also created issues between the rich and the poor in Corinth as we're going to see. One of them being uh, the issue of the feasts and the Lord's Supper, um, lawsuits. Beyond that, the culture of Corinth was very immoral. The trade, the travel, the isthmus games... The large quantity of different cultures kind of moving in also contributed to the great immorality of the city. The city was notorious for its fornication, for its prostitution, for its drunkenness, its cultic worship, its emperor worship, and its pagan feasts. And these pagan feasts, what would happen is the leftover meat would then be sold in the market. This is why Paul then addresses eating meat sacrificed to idols in 1 Corinthians 8 and then again in 1 Corinthians 10. The city was full of orators and philosophers, professional speakers, professional thinkers who were trained in the arts of persuasion, skilled pagan speakers and thinkers gifted in molding the minds of the people. The city was admired for its wealth and its wisdom And it's probably why the church of Corinth was so attracted to trained speakers like Apollos and not so attracted to those who come in weakness and trembling as Paul came. Something else that's going to be important for us as we go through the letters, a lot of these cultural influences contributed to the poor theology within the church. And really this is similar to what we deal with today. It's called cultural syncretism. Cultural syncretism is what was plaguing the church in Corinth. And what it is, is it's a combining of different religious and cultural thought, creating really, from a biblical perspective, a perverted worldview and theology. And this perversion infected the church in Corinth. This is why Paul has to address so many different issues that you're kind of wondering, why is all this in one letter? I mean, you're going to read this letter and you're going to say, these are such a, a broad um, scope of issues. I mean we're talking about sex and marriage. We're talking about lawsuits. We're talking about um, fornication, homosexuality, church discipline, the resurrection, the future resurrection, practicing the Lord's Supper, unity and division. I mean, I mean it's, just, it's across the board. And the reason why is because of this cultural syncretism, which was taking place in the broad city of Corinth, and didn't leave the church unscathed. And so, what the main thing I want to talk about this morning, for um, for implication and application purposes, and as we continue on in the letter of Corinth, is this idea of a biblical worldview. A lot of what we are going to see in 1 Corinthians are issues about biblical worldview. Not having a worldview that lines up with Scripture or with who you are in Christ. Paul is going to give us some insight on how to understand and interpret Scripture like the law. This is where we get the passage where Paul compares muzzling an ox to paying a minister of the gospel. So we're going to see certain things like that taking place in the letter of Paul's use of the Old Testament scripture. But we're also going to see Paul, and this is kind of in your outline section. I'm going to list out some of these things, but not in too much detail. Paul's kind of list of these issues that he has to address within the church. He has to address Division and unity within the church. The problem with the Corinthian church is that they were divided on the things they should have been unified in, and they were unified in the things that really should have caused division. They're unified on sin and immorality within the church. They're unified um, in, in, in poor treatment of people, yet they're divided on something like the Lord's Supper, which is something that the church, Paul says, should be united on. Paul then talks about godly wisdom and worldly wisdom. There is a wisdom that seems right to man. I know we've talked about this. There's a wisdom that seems right to man. And Paul's going to say, that's foolishness to God. The best wisdom that man has from a, a fallen worldview is foolishness to God. And even the lowest amount of wisdom from God is foolishness to man because man cannot understand the things of God. The things of the flesh cannot appraise the things of the spirit. So Paul is going to talk about this sharp contrast, this dichotomy between the worldview that the world has that's fallen and secular and wrong and rebellious that's in contrast. This isn't a Venn diagram. This isn't a Venn diagram where you have the worldview of Scripture, the worldview of the world, and then there's some neutral overlap like in something like science. That doesn't exist. There is the worldview of the world, and it's in total contrast to the worldview of God. And you know why I can say something about even science being in contrast? Because the reality is creation groans and proclaims the glory of God. If you are practicing science in a way that does not reveal the character of God, you are not actually practicing science. There's no neutrality. There is a biblical, godly view of creation and the Lord and the world and sin and rebellion, and there is a worldly perspective. And they do not overlap. Paul then talks about our identity. Our identity needs to be with Christ and not the world. This is going to come up in 1 Corinthians 6. Identity is a huge worldview issue. In fact, it's such a huge worldview issue, even within the church, that I'd venture to bet that some of you in here still identify with your old self in a lot of ways. The church today, even in this modern world... 2,000 years removed from the letter of 1 Corinthians is still wrestling with the idea of mixing our identity, our fallen identity, with Christ. This is why the church can throw around strange, ungodly, unbiblical terms like white evangelicalism and gay Christians and conservative and liberal Christians. These aren't terms from the Bible. These are identity terms that pull us away from our identity in Christ and in the word of God. Paul talks about proper judgment of sin within the body of Christ. This is 1 Corinthians 5. He, he talks about that you can't, you can't have sin in the camp. It cannot stay. It cannot remain. And worse, you can't celebrate it. And that's what the Corinthians were doing. They were celebrating a man sleeping with his mother-in-law. Paul talks about Christian liberty, an idea that's really been butchered again by modern evangelicals where we take a passage like liberty, quote unquote, in 1 Corinthians and thinks it gives us license to do just about anything we want. Paul says all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. Well, we'll see if that's actually what Paul's saying. Paul takes issue with secular judges instead of handling things within the church. This is another worldview issue. You're you're taking issues within the church and you're bringing them before secular judges. Do you see how that doesn't make sense? Now, this isn't about crime. God has established government, as we've talked about over and over. God has established government to punish that which is wicked and punish crime. Right, So there are crimes that you, you definitely bring before the state. Paul's not against that. But what he's saying is you have in-house issues that apparently you are having trouble settling yourselves, and so you're just suing each other and having these lawsuits and then bring it before unwise secular judges. Remember that wisdom of the world against the wisdom of God? They can't discern the things of God, so they can't even rightly judge the issues that you bring. So you're creating more division in the church that way. The Christian view of marriage and family and singleness, ideas again today that their church is struggling, being more guided by this cultural syncretism than by the word of God. Christian ministers, Christian ministry. Paul talks about gender roles, male headship within the church and within the family. Men are called to lead. And men, we don't do this very well. There's this spectrum, and we tend to be falling on one end or the other where we have either, like many Christian leaders, become passive and effeminate, or we men who lead our churches and homes in a way that crush women. Both are an abomination to God. That's not how men are called to lead. Paul talks about female submission. A topic that nobody wants to talk about anymore because men have abused their authority and women overwhelmingly desire the role of men. So most people shrink back. They don't want to risk offending anyone. And we eliminate trigger words like patriarchy and gender roles because it's a little ick. Why? Cultural syncretism. Paul talks about the importance of the Lord's Supper and unity over the Lord's Supper. Paul talks about a godly definition of love against a worldly understanding that is baseless and meaningless when he talks about love as the greatest gift. Paul talks about the use and abuse of the spiritual gifts within the body of Christ, and then Paul ends his letter with a discussion of the deep theology of the resurrection of Christ and the future resurrection of Christ's people. See, the Corinthian church faced a lot of the same problems that the church is invaded with today. And a lot of times the root issue is a lack of biblical foundation for a worldview. We need to come back to that biblical foundation of thought and to put it simply, we need to, it, really what it comes down to is we need to think deeply and consistently biblical in all areas of life. You'll see as Paul talks here, Paul references the Old Testament. He goes back to Scripture multiple times. He's not just making these things up on the fly. He has apostolic authority, so he does say some things that are new, but he's still, if you're going to look at it, it's consistent with what the Word of God has already said. It's consistent with what Christ's message has been. There's no conflict there. If we find that our worldview is coming into conflict Coming into conflict with any point of scripture, we have to recognize it's our worldview that is the one that is flawed. And so, Paul in 1 Corinthians is really kind of taking on this challenge of getting the church to be of one mind. This is why he calls for unity over division right at the beginning and throughout. And as I said earlier, this is because the church of Corinth was divided in areas where it should have been united and united in areas where there should have been division. And so First Corinthians, in many ways, is about building this biblical worldview, seeing the world through new eyes, eyes that are made to look through the lens of Scripture in any and every area of our lives. And what this does, just like in Corinth, is it raises a number of challenges, theologically, socially, ethically, and even ecclesiastically, even issues of of the church. Because it's not our natural state. And so I want to show a couple of these challenges in a modern way. I have two examples. And I'll tell you how they relate to the book of 1 Corinthians as we go through them. But the first example is a video I want to show you. I don't do this hardly ever. I'll probably never do it again. But there's a video I want to show you, and then we'll talk about it after the clip. So John's going to get that going.
1: Forgive me, Dr. Jacobs. Are you an M.D.? A A Ph.D. A Ph.D.? Yes, sir. In psychology? No, sir. Theology? No. Social work? I have a PhD in English literature. I'm asking because on your show people call in for advice and you go by the name Dr. Jacobs on your show. And I didn't know if maybe your listeners were confused by that and assumed you had advanced training in psychology, theology, or healthcare. I don't believe they are confused, no, sir. Good. I like your show. I like how you call homosexuality an abomination say homosexuality is an abomination. Mr. President, the Bible does. Yes, it does. Leviticus. 1822. Chapter and verse. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions while I had you here. I'm interested in selling my youngest daughter into slavery, a sanction in Exodus 21.7. She's a Georgetown sophomore, speaks fluent Italian, always cleared the table when it was her turn. What would a good price for her be? While thinking about that, can I ask another my chief of staff, Leo McGarry, insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35, 2, clearly says he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to killing myself, or is it okay to call the police? Here's one that's really important, because we've got a lot of sports fans in this town. Touching the skin of a dead pig makes one unclean. Leviticus eleven seven. If they promise to wear gloves, can the Washington Redskins still play football? Can Notre Dame? Can West Point? Does the whole town really have to be together to stone my brother John for planting different crops side by side? Can I burn my mother in a small family gathering for wearing garments made from two different threads? Think about those questions, would you?
0: So I just want you to think to yourself, you know, and say it out loud. How would you respond to that? Yeah, keep it to yourself. How would you respond to that kind of accusation? I'll tell you something. Arguments like this only get to be made on popular television shows because many Christians don't know how to respond to it. Because I would venture to guess that if we took a poll of the different responses to it in this room, we'd have very different responses. Now, in a situation like that, obviously, it's designed to be jarring. It's designed to, you know, he's coming at you so quick you can't say anything. But imagine if it was just one of those questions, and you were actually having a conversation, not just, you know, some guy trying to embarrass you in a room. Do we think consistently biblically? Or would we fall into traps like that? See, the problem of biblical interpretation in a biblically illiterate church is that it won't know how to face the theological challenges that the society and culture presents. How do you respond to a pagan culture? around you that does not understand and even hates your theology and worldview. And so a biblical worldview has to be prepared for the theological challenges of the culture. Otherwise, what will happen is what happens in Corinth, which is you will mix the theology and the culture, and it will become impotent and ineffective. Because Peter does tell us that we need to be ready to make a defense of the faith of those who ask. And when someone has a problem with God's word, we can't just shy away. We can't just pretend that that's for the elites. Because guess what? Peter wasn't talking about the elites. Peter was talking about the people in the congregation, both the educated and the uneducated. And it comes from building a biblical worldview. Because the reality is, that is a foolish argument. And it should be laughable for Christians, but instead it's scary. The lack of biblical wisdom here is simply because the worldview of the church has become a lot like the world. And so when we make a claim from Scripture that the world doesn't like, and they start firing back, using our tools against us, the Corinthians had a poor theology. They had a poor theology that Paul has to confront, a poor theology of sin and grace, a poor theology of sex and marriage, a poor theology of spiritual gifts, a poor theology of the resurrection. Because it was mixed with and influenced by the culture around it. And a Christian with poor theology is unprepared for the challenges that he or she will face, whether it be in the church or with the world outside. That's the first challenge. The second challenge is more of a modern ethical challenge. Paul has to address things like this when he talks about meat sacrificed to idols. When he talks about what are we going to do when you're married to someone who's not part of the covenant community. Because that's not something that really took place unless it was chastised back in the Old Testament. So what are we doing here now that Gentiles have been brought in and you have family members that are being saved but spouses that aren't? Paul has to address the modern ethical issues. And we too as Christians today, we need to have a biblical worldview that can address the modern ethical issues that we will be facing as well. So I have an interesting modern example. A lot of you know that there are two vaccines for COVID that are very close to being ready. Moderna has developed a COVID vaccine that contains human embryonic kidney cell HEK293 and hum- human embryonic retinal cells PERC6. The HEK293 cell is a line, is a permanent line of primary human embryonal kidney transformed by sheared human type 5 DNA. What that basically means is that there is an aborted fetus, which is Latin for child. It's okay to use fetus. There is an aborted fetus, and a piece of human tissue from the fetus was immortalized through a continuous cell line to be experimented on. The 293, by the way, stands for the number of aborted fetal experiments before establishing this cell line. Concerning PERC6, which is also contained within the Moderna COVID vaccine, specifically, the doctor recorded, so I isolated retina from a fetus, from a healthy fetus as far as could be seen of 18 weeks old. There was nothing special with the family history or the pregnancy. was completely normal up to 18 weeks, and it turned out to be a socially indicated abortus. And that was simply because the woman wanted to get rid of the fetus. These are in the vaccines coming out for COVID. Fissure is the other one. The other major vaccine doesn't contain HEK293 cells in the product, but it did use the cells for testing the vaccine. See, this sort of ethical discussion cannot even properly exist apart from a biblical worldview that is consistent. What is a biblical worldview of murder? What is a biblical worldview of being made in the image of God? What is a biblical worldview of human sacrifice? How does the Bible generally speak of God's people sacrificing the weak for the prosperity and survival of the strong? And by the way, Many ancient, savage cultures would seek the survival and prosperity of their community through the blood of sacrificed people, mainly children and women. We look at them and think, that's barbaric. But is what we're doing really any different? Sacrificing the smallest bloodshed for the health, wealth, and prosperity of the strong. It's pretty easy to make the decision when it's not your neck on the line, isn't it? Also, when Israel participated in these kinds of sacrifices to Molech, they did it for the greater good. See, these human sacrifices, especially the child sacrifices, they were for purposes for the community. It wasn't just a selfish sacrifice for no reason. It was for the prosperity of your family. It was for the prosperity of the community. Hey, we got a famine we need to solve here. Let's sacrifice the blood of the children because we're also infertile. The land is infertile. We are infertile. Let us sacrifice children to the gods and their bloodshed will bring about the prosperity of our community so that we can survive. And how does God respond? He calls his people whores. He said, you have whored yourself out to the false gods of this world. And then you want to turn and call to me and say, the Lord, the Lord, this is your temple. We need to think consistently, biblically, biblically, in all these areas. We don't get a pass. We don't get to ignore the, cor- the current ethical issues of today because we don't want to have to deal with it. And we want to remain ignorant. The reality is babies are dying. People don't know their Bible I know that 1 Corinthians does not directly answer the modern challenges that I brought up. But the point is that the challenges that Corinth faced at the time of this letter were the modern challenges of their day. Am I allowed to eat meat sacrificed to idols? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, you can't share the cup of God and the cup of demons. So then Paul has to address, what do we do? What we need to be thinking about is what pleases Christ? What does Scripture say about how to interact with a rebellious pagan culture? What does Scripture say about how to handle issues within the church body? What is the consistent biblical view of male and female, sex, marriage, the future bodily resurrection? Why is that so important for Paul? So 1 Corinthians will not answer every question we have directly directly but it is a uniquely broad letter dealing with a wide range of issues. And the goal is that we would think and live biblically in order to glorify God in heaven. And so here's my challenge to you as we close here, that you would read and invest yourself in this letter as we go through it. Read 1 Corinthians. Be devoted to it. Be challenged by it. Don't skip over the hard passages Come with questions. See where does your worldview line up with the worldview of Paul, the worldview of Scripture, and be aware of the places where your worldview may not. And my prayer is that as we do that, that we would let this letter and the, the, the sermons that we have in the future, that we would let it conform our hearts and our minds to think biblically in order that we may live biblically. Let First Corinthians be a starting point for a greater established biblical worldview in your life. Let's pray. Lord, the only answer to the tough challenges that we have today are to think biblically. Ralph even prayed for us before we started. He said that when we are saved, we are given what we are needed for the life of godliness. We are given the faith. We are given the word of God. We are given the instruction. We are given the body of Christ. And so I pray, Lord, as we begin this journey together through 1 Corinthians, that we would be challenged, that we would be challenged to think biblically, that we would not take the easy way out as Christians to try to ignore the hard questions, or think that what's in this book is only for the scholars and not for us. Lord, it is your word. It is your truth. I pray that you would conform each and every one of us to that reality.